Hi, I'm Maytal, and welcome to Heal With It, a podcast about healing in its many and sometimes unexpected forms. In 2012, the First World Happiness Report was published. It was an initiative pioneered by the UN, one that was seeking to rank the top 10 happiest countries on the globe. Their hope was to learn about which countries were the happiest so that policymakers in other parts of the world could follow suit. What this report has consistently found for the last nine years is that Denmark is one of the happiest places on earth. And it's not just this report claiming Denmark's happiness. Reports like these have been around for decades, spotlighting the Scandinavian country as a place of contentment and ease. It makes sense to me that Danes are so happy. I mean, they have epic social safety nets, universal health care, the word huge in their vocabulary. But according to Ibn Sandal, There's one more thing that sets Denmark apart from other countries. One more thing that makes it land on the World Happiness Report each and every year. And that thing is the way children are raised. The funny thing is that Denmark has been voted the happiest country in the world for more than 40 years. And there's been found many explanations to this, but no Nobody has ever turned their attention into how we are brought up, how we uh, bring up children in, in Denmark. And I have always found that was strange because, I mean, how we are brought up means everything, in my opinion. That's Eben. She's a Danish parenting expert, psychotherapist, and an author. Her life purpose is teaching others the Danish way of parenting raising children, and of creating a more empathic world. One of her focal points is the fact that in Denmark, empathy is taught in schools, which to me is incredible because while I've heard of this happening at some schools in the States, it's by no means the norm here. In Denmark, though, empathy is a subject intentionally infused into the school curriculum, made just as important as math or science. I mean, can you imagine the implications? My conversation with Eben makes it so we don't have to. Today we talk about what it means to teach empathy and what that even looks like played out in a school. We also talk about other things like the gift of parenting and the illusion of perfectionism. There is so much wisdom embedded in this conversation. So with that being said, let's dive into it. so excited to talk to you today. Thanks for coming in, for doing this. Let's start with that journey and what drew you to this work. How did you become drawn to doing 
stuff related to childhood, parenting, psychotherapy? What drew you to all of this? I think from very early on, when I was a child, in many ways, I had a really happy childhood and grew up a a good place. And my parents were divorced when I was very young. And I came to live with my mother. I think we are very different. And she's not that much into hugging and physical contact. And I'm the opposite. I love that. And I feel very seen or valued when I have physical contact. So in many ways, I there were aspects of my childhood where I didn't feel loved. So I had, in a very natural way, an awareness that there was something that should be different for me to, to make me really happy and fulfilled. So I started to have an interest in how to to change uh, habits, how to do it differently, how to develop myself well inwardly. And yeah, I'm very sure that it started that way. Everyone who knows me from that time would say that it has always been like that. I have always been one people were coming to because it was just a way that where people felt safe and secure around me. And my inner journey especially exploded when I became a mother myself, because then I realized that I was doing things from my own childhood that hurt me then. And because of that, I, I wanted to, to change that. I I think that I brought some sort of distance with me from my own childhood into my parenting. And therefore, I could quickly have passed this unhealthy way to manage uh, unhealed wounds onto my kids if I wasn't aware to change that. But I was aware, and I'm very happy for that. So so it's, it's been a long way since I started this journey. I have many years of experience now. I think something I've found is people who are focused on healing and helping others heal have very much had to go through a journey of their own healing. And it's a theme I find. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, healthy parenting is deeply connected to mental health, in my opinion. And one of the greatest barricades to live from love and thereby live in balance, healthily, is our upbringing. Um, and I think these are how we are, have not felt seen or recognized and loved, that we will project out into the world as adults, like I saw myself doing that. I think healthy parenting is, is all about changing focus from how our children should be handled to how how we should handle ourselves. Mm. Uh, so for me, it's more about creating awareness around what we take with us into parenting, into the parenting role, so that we make sure that future generations grow up with greater love uh, for themselves and for the world. And 
I mean, no one has ever been met 100% when they were children. So, so we are passing this on to our children, like our parents have passed this on to us, if we are not conscious about what we bring with us, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. I, I love what you said about how healthy parenting is all about changing focus from how our children should be handled to how we should handle ourselves. Like that feels like such a profound paradigm shift. It, I don't know. It often feels like so much of the current parenting culture is about trying to get your kids like the best toy or the best education or the best access to the best resources. But what if parenting culture was focused on looking inwards and healing childhood wounds and being the best version of yourself for your kid? It all just sounds hard though. Like how can parents do this work all the while managing the incredibly large responsibility of raising children? Well, if you don't have the awareness yourself, I think one place to start is to recognize uh, when you feel triggered. Because very often we point fingers of our children and give them responsibility of what's going on inside us. So I, I don't know the name in English, if it's introspection or something like that, but in Danish it is. So we blame our children from causing us the feeling of wounded feelings inside. And that's that's shown in our triggers. So very small things can make us awaken all the, the wounded feelings that we haven't healed from our childhood. So take, for example, I'm very quick at handling things and come up with solutions and I'm very uh, dedicated right away and you know then let's just do this and this and this I'm reacting very fast and for me that's just the personality I have and I have a, a daughter and she's much slower and she has to think about it and make it her own if I want to go out of the door or if we're going to go out and buy something and I let's, let's go right now and it could be in any situations and she just says, no, let's just wait for a second. And she's, yeah, she's just, she needs time to convert it into something that's useful for her. And that can trigger me because I need, for me, a value that something that comes very natural to me is like, okay, let's go out uh, and do it right away and uh, you know the energy in that and because she's much slower it's uh, I'm like oh mm, why isn't she doing like I want her to do and that can trigger something in me and it's not like it's uh, an old unhealed wound at all from my childhood not in not in this specific situation but it's just our personalities that are very different. And then I have to like understand that, okay, even breathe and respect that we are different. She's just behaving in another way than I am. And that's okay. Instead of, you know, getting irritated at her because I think that she's lazy then, or maybe I want to label her negatively because she's not behaving like I want her to behave. So it has something to do with me and not with her. And that's, I mean, every time we feel some sort of triggered, 
we have to remember that, well, we are different, first of all. But also it could be that it has had something to do with me not getting allowed to be lazy when I was a child. So I closed that door of being lazy. It wasn't recognized as something valuable to be, let's say, lazy. So for me, you know, I feel that today I need to be, to handle very quickly and to not be lazy. So when she's just more slow and uh, not lazy, but just more so, it awakens that feeling in me that I have closed down when I was a child. This wasn't valued. So I have to understand that. I have to feel some kind of consciousness about that to make sure that I'm not giving her the same feeling that she's wrong. She's not wrong. I'm just having so many thoughts over here. One of them is relationships are the ultimate mirrors. I mean, friendships show you when you get frustrated at something, it's usually something coming up within yourself. Romantic partnership. I mean, me coming into a strong romantic partnership that I am has been the most life-changing thing that's happened for my own mental health because I've had to see myself in a mirror, I've had to see my triggers and work on them. And I'm not a parent yet. And so I imagine when I have a child, that will be magnified times 100. But then there's this added pressure of not only do I have to notice and be aware, but my actions will directly mold and affect the adult you come to be. And it's a it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I understand where you are coming from. I see it as a huge gift. I mean, I, I, they are mirroring us and they are, you know, we, we have the opportunity to, to heal uh, because they are reflecting everything back to us. And I mean, maybe in... 20 years, 10 years, 30 years, I don't know. I will do my best to make uh, this uh, grow. We will probably say, well, we all know that they are children, they are reflecting our unhealed wounds. So, of course, we have to take care of that. But I, I think it's so strange that this hasn't happened yet because it's so obvious that uh, that is what, what is happening. I mean, every time, you know, when I, when I, became a mother for the first time. My daughter, Ida, she, um, you know, she was very, well, of course she was perfect and everything was uh, good, but as uh, she grew older, I think she was around two or something like that. She was a little bit shy and uh, she needed to have an overview and she was very reflective. And, uh, and when we have guests over and uh, their children, they were like dancing around and screaming and doing everything. She was more like, hmm, I'm just observing what's going on. And that triggered me because then often she came to me and she needed a shield for a while to just a, a safe base, I think. And I didn't always embrace her, but I instead I, I said to her, well, go out again and join the others and play with them. I didn't understand her need 
because I felt that she should be different. I felt that she should be wild and crazy and screaming and, you know, all that she didn't, that, that she wasn't. And every time when our guest had left, I felt bad. I, 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 the feeling I had inside was just, why did I do that? Mm. I mean, I could see it in her eyes that she just needed me just for maybe a couple of minutes. And and I didn't really embrace that. And then I started to to reflect on my own behavior. Why is that? I mean, I, I love her and she's per perfect to me and I don't want her to be different, you know. So why am I acting like she she's not okay, you know? And, uh, and that process was really an eye-opening for me to understand that it has all to do with me and nothing to do with her. And then I really, really understood that this was something I had to take care of myself because I really, really wanted her to feel that she was perfect and loved as she is. You know what is so beautiful and courageous about that story? I think there's a stigma or a fear to admit that something your kid's doing is bothering you or something your kid's doing, you're judging it negatively. And then to take it a step further to admit I'm making a mistake and to do that reflective, deep work. So think about to create this revolution in parenting that you're kind of speaking of. I think part of it is also removing the stigma of how we talk about being parents or how people talk about relating to their children. And I wonder how that stigma can be removed. I think that all we can do is start by ourselves and leave the idea of being perfect. Because, I mean, perfectionism doesn't exist in my world at all. And I, I would also think that if it did, it would be very boring. I like diversity. I like that we are different. And I like that we have different abilities and different, I mean, there's room for everyone. So I think that when we allow ourselves to, to look inwardly and to recognize that, yeah, sometimes it can be difficult to, to love our children and then in investigate that with some kind of curiosity. Why is it like that? Instead of making it our children's fault, because it has everything to do with us. And if we stand on that platform together, we are all the same. We have to lift that burden, all of us, and then really try to understand that I always try to remember in my own mind when I'm losing my overview of what I really believe in, that, you know, when we, when we get our newborn in our arms, the first year, the first month, we're like, everything is perfect. You know, the, when a little baby is screaming, we're still like, oh, oh. And when they're pooing, they're like, oh, my God, that's so fantastic. Everything that our little baby newborn is doing is just 
amazing. And then when they become like one year old, we start like, hmm, suddenly this is not okay anymore. Mm. So no, you shouldn't say that in public, honey, because, you know, three months earlier, it was fantastic. But now we start to to change and set up systems. And that, that's a part of, you know, raising children. There are boundaries and there are norms and social cultures we have to, to live up to. But at the same time, we are also starting there to close the doors of what is acceptable. And that can be also sides of our children that are a part of their personalities that we suddenly don't feel that is appropriate anymore. Uh, of course, there are their natural things like they have to learn to eat and behave well and, you know, all the more in the, in the broader frame of how to behave and how to function in, a, in our society. But we also start to, to let them know that not, they are not fully loved anymore. It's more specific how they should behave to feel loved. And we have undergone the same process as our parents as well. So it's also a lot about the culture we are living in and what is acceptable and what is not, but also what we bring with us ourselves. It's interesting. What always blows my mind about humans is that all of us are imperfect. All of us suffer tremendously. We feel pain. We feel sadness. We feel loneliness. But we are constantly trying to put on this facade of perfection, strength, the opposite of vulnerability, essentially. And it isolates us from each other. If only we just we're open about it. We would all be so much more connected. If only we were all more empathetic, we would all be so much more connected. And then that sort of trend, we pass it on to these kids. We pass it on to the kids like, this is how you can be more perfect. And this is how you can be less vulnerable, aka less of yourself. So many children, but also adults today are very lonely. And we are dependent on having close and meaningful relationship with other people. So it's at the service we're doing because we need the opposite. And, uh, and that's why I think that sharing our own vulnerability and, and staying authentic to our true self, that allows us to, to be open and honest about our own faults and where we do not do parenting good enough or being a good enough spouse or whatever, because that is human. I mean, we all do. And if we can stand on that platform all together, I am sure that it will change. And I do think that we have been in a process for many years now where everything should be perfect and we are working a lot and people are stressed out and a lot of children are getting diagnoses and, you know, there's been a lot of focus on external things. And I do believe that the opposite will come to us again because we, we now see that uh, it isn't functioning 
too many feel lonely and empathy is decreasing and too many get anxiety and depression and you know everything like that so i think that we we sense that there's a need for change and that's uh, and i believe that um that we can all feel that and we can work towards more compassion more love more more awareness of what we bring with us yeah that is really beautifully said i think this is a good time for us to take a break and then when we come back let's talk about your book the danish way Let's start with the book. So for those who have not read the book that you wrote with Jessica Alexander, from my understanding, y'all came together to basically write a book to speak on what sets Denmark apart. We, I mean, many people often hear that Denmark is the happiest place in the world. So you guys came together to write a book to explain, well, why? What makes Denmark happier? So would you mind speaking of the book and what you guys found and what the answer was to why is Denmark such a happy place? The funny thing is that Denmark has been voted the happiest country in the world for more than 40 years. And there's been found many explanations to this, but nobody has ever turned their attention into how we are brought up, how we uh, bring up children in, in Denmark. And I have always found that was strange because, I mean, how we are brought up means everything, in my opinion. And I have had a good conversation with uh, my co-author, Jessica, and and she came from America and, and saw the differences in how I was raising my children compared to how she was raised in the uh, in United States. So tell me some of the main differences and the conversations you were having with Jessica when you were comparing Denmark upbringing of children and parenting versus U.S. What were some of the largest differences y'all were coming across? I think that uh, I would say that Americans are individualists and Danes are more collectivists and has a long tradition in of togetherness and culturally strong sense of community. I think that as a society, you are more I and I'm more we. So I, I know, I mean, I don't, that's what I have been told and that that is what I have experienced. So your culture is built on the self-made man and you are raised to grow up to be independent. Uh, what Danes are more democratically raised. I have seen that Americans are very competitive as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what I have been told anyway. And you are more you, you're striving more to make your children better than others or 
because you know that the better kids, the better it will get rewards or trophies or I don't know, praise, love. I don't, I'm not sure. And I mean, we are not the same way. We work more together and it's a process in Denmark that together we make it work. I also believe that we have um, a strong sense of authenticity in Denmark. We believe that being honest about life and the way we live, also the difficult and invitable sides that we teach our children some tools on how to deal with with the challenges they will meet in life uh, without, you know, breaking down. So I think that those are some of the uh, differences. And then there's a lot of focus on empathy as well in Denmark. I think children, they get it in from already from kindergarten. Well, of course, from parents as well, hopefully. Otherwise, from uh, kindergarten, there's a lot of play, free play, focus on free play in Denmark. It has, yeah, it's dated back to late 18th century. So, so we know that learning works really well when it's when when you're having fun or when it makes sense for you and and play is amazing for children to grow up with a strong sense of resilience and confidence and yeah happiness they they trust in themselves in their own abilities what's really standing out to me is there's seems to be from what you're explaining less of an emphasis on your kid being the best, less of an emphasis on your kid being the most special or the top of the class or winning. And that ends up bleeding through the way the curriculum is developed in schools. That ends up bleeding through the way parents relate and respond to their children. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Of course, you can find parents as well who are hoping that they're child is the best in class and the best at football or violin but in generally how we are raised or how we raise our children it is really a matter of how to cooperate how to work together that is the the aspects the areas that are valued in Denmark or in schools or in kindergarten are you a good friend do you know how to help your classmate how how do you speak together? Uh, do you show compassion? Um, you know, some of the soft values are appreciated here uh, very much. Mm. And that is also why it's a part of the cur- curriculum in our school system. Not, not specifically like in a methodology in some sort of like you have to do it from A to B to C and then follow this manual but it's an approach that is stated in in the school act that uh, teachers must be empathic they must make sure to meet the individual student on the needs uh, that student need and uh, their abilities and so on i mean i have um, i have been a part of a huge project where i have develop a methodology on how teachers can teach students empathy. 
And to me, I'm, so many places, they are asking for a manual on how to do that in practice. But I truly believe that being authentic and being a role model yourself as a teacher, you need to be empathic yourself. And if you're not empathic, you can't connect with your students. And that is, I mean, that is essential that you can connect. And some says that, well, that is not the teacher's role. But to me, it is a natural part of being a teacher, connecting with your students, because then you make sure that they are actually feeling safe in school, that they're feeling good. They don't have to have their shoulders up and the guards ready. They feel safe in a class environment where everyone is treating uh, each other in a good way. I wish it was acknowledged that teachers are mental health gatekeepers for their students. If we acknowledge that, teachers would get different training and they would get a lot of different resources and support because that's much of their job. It drives me crazy that it's not not only acknowledged, but really celebrated and they're not sort of paid or supported in whatever way to actually do that work. It's just sort of assumed. So when reading your book, I thought basically that empathy was a taught curriculum in Denmark, but is that not true? It's just sort of philosophy infused into all of the learning? Well, it's not a taught curriculum in that sense. It's, as I said, it's kind of an approach. So it can be in the smaller classes, it's a dedicated hour each week that where they sit together, talk about special issues uh, that can be bullying, the the atmosphere in the class. If uh, someone uh, has lost a parent or divorce or anything that that's actually in the uh, in the moment, or you know a fight in recess or whatever, so that is a dedicated hour that is aimed for that a class time. It's called in the smaller classes, but in the bigger classes, it's just whenever there's a need for let's talk, let's connect. What's going on? You know. There's a saying that children don't do as you say, but do as you do. Mm. So therefore, empathy is uh, taught in how they are working together, how they are cooperating. You know, in every class, they have to work in pairs. They are working in groups. They They are also in recess. Older children who are taking care of younger children, making sure they have someone to play with or playing with them. You know, there are many initiatives in Danish schools where empathy is being just a natural part of being a student or being a teacher in that sense. So it's not like this specific manual. Well, I have created a manual, (laughs) based on what we do in Denmark, but that's aimed for schools outside of Denmark. A lot of different ways to to approach and how to do as a teacher. But basically, it's, it is ingrained in the way teachers are educated in Denmark. That's really cool. Because the question becomes, how do you teach empathy? And I love what you're saying. It's not about this cognitive thing where you say, okay, this is the definition of empathy. This is a 
picture of what empathy looks like. It kind of reminds me of therapy. Like when I sit with a client in the office, some of the lessons that are learned in therapy are not for me telling them something. It's just from my way of being and connecting and relating and my openness that shows as an example. Exactly. And making them reflect on what do you think about this? How do you feel when that happened? How do you think that your classmate is reacting or feeling? You know, make them reflect on their behavior. That's where they recognize it themselves and know how it feels to be a good friend, for example. And it's not a responsibility that only lays on the teachers. It's also important that the teachers have a good connection to parents because children need a good support system around them to make this work. So therefore, the school must have a good relationship with their parents where they communicate and talk about if there are any issues with a child and back that up as in at home as well. So that's also a very big part. It's not only like now you're a teacher, you have to go in and teach empathy and be empathic. You also need to have some good colleagues around you who support you and who listen to you when there are issues with parents. You need to have a good structure in the school and the principals that need to back up around the teachers. So it's all a system that must be around teachers, but also students or we as parents must also, you know, have a good relationship towards each other. In Denmark, take for example, there's a lot of focus on how we can become good friends So in my neighborhood, we did it every year. We uh, created something called running dinner where all parents met to get to know each other. So we uh, met up a Saturday night and were put out in different groups. So like in eight houses, 50 parents divided out. And then we ate dinner one place. And then at two hours later, we swifted around and Then we got to a new house and ate a second dish. And finally, we met all together and we partied all night. And that is something that the school really recommends because it's much easier to handle problems or arguments between students if we know each other as parents. If we have some experience where we have done something really nice or going out and canoeing or whatever, But everyone knows that it's as older your children get, it's much difficult to talk about they shouldn't drink, they shouldn't do this and that. So if we know each other as parents, we can communicate more positively towards each other. And that's also a structure behind our students on how we can really be a safe platform for them in their neighborhood and in their school and so on. And that's that's also a way to, to, um, to practice empathy. This is so fascinating to me because it feels like in the U.S., perhaps because of our more capitalistic, individualist, you know, competitive culture, we seek these quick fixes. We seek direct solutions. But that's not... That's not really possible with cultivating empathy. I mean, you can't develop a quick fix to make people more empathic. There's no pill to swallow. There's no shot to administer. You can't just hand out a brochure. Cultivating empathy is 
it's not a direct process. It's, it's a circular one, a systemic one. It requires many different systems of support, just like I'm hearing you talk about. And it makes sense to me that empathy is more prevalent in spaces in Denmark, given the socio-political structure, given the presence of strong social support networks. Yeah, I'm sure it does. In so many ways, we are privileged uh, here. And I do believe that the focus is not on fixing, but it's more on building up a healthy foundation, healthy system. So that's why there's so much focus on it's not something that you just teach like fixing. It's something that must grow slowly and eventually, like we grow, like you can't just have a, you can't just learn to read. You have to to go through the process of reading. And in the same way, we are like building up slowly a healthy um, system beneath us some, somehow. Oh, I just got the chills as you were explaining that. It, that just feels so relevant to all mental health because I feel like so often we're just, the problem emerges, let's fix it. You're sad, now go to therapy. You're sad, now take a medication. What if we were building community and support systems from the get-go to support kids, to support parents, to support teachers? So I wanted to ask, with this incredible work that you're doing, where now you're trying to sort of distill how is empathy taught? How do we spread it? How do teachers bring it into classrooms? What is your sort of vision or hope for how that will play out or how that will grow? Well, my my vision or my hope or my dream, I don't know, is that if we make this awareness of how what we bring with us ourselves, we can make sure that future generations of children, they will grow up with better opportunities to to be happy and to balanced and to to give love towards themselves but also for our world and i see I, I really see that when i'm meeting people from other cultures that it is possible and i think it's a movement that is growing because i hear every time that people really really need change so and i wish for children that they should be seen and loved for who they are that is really something that is important for me because then they they will grow up and and allow themselves to be fully them if we can embrace more of that the energy around us will be more positive and lighter and and better for everyone and it doesn't really have to be that difficult i mean I've done it. So many of us have have been there. And uh, if we acknowledge that no one is perfect, it's much easier to embrace our own vulnerability or our own wounds. Or, and then that becomes natural. That becomes acceptable. That becomes being strong. You know, and then then we have changed the world. 
Beautifully said. People want to learn more about you, your work, what you're doing, what's in store for you in your future. Where do you recommend they visit or they check out? Well, basically, I'm not that much into social media things, but I do really like Instagram. I think the voice there, it's very kind and and supportive. That platform is... Uh, what I really appreciate, and it's called the Danish way. And otherwise, if people are not on Instagram, then I have my website. It's called ebensandale.com. That's where, where I can be found. Awesome. Thank you so much for everything today. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I feel like my mind exploded in a million directions and Wow. Just so many thoughts to take home. So thank you for everything. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Heal With It, a podcast brought to you by Camille Breslin and me, Maytal Eyal. Please listen and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at Heal With It Podcast. Audio engineering for Heal With It was done by Camille Breslin and Miles Mercer. Original music by Miles Mercer. Creative direction by Eric Fletes. Art and illustration by Alexander Bustamante, Mercedes Llanos, and Samantha Mash.